You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. Christopher Media, let's make some noise. Welcome to a special episode of The Projection Booth. I'm your host, Mike White. On this episode, I'm going to be talking to you a little bit about Art House Theater Day, which is this coming Sunday, if you're listening to this when it drops. It is Sunday, September 23rd, 2018. And on this episode, I'm going to be talking to the co-directors, Gabe and Lauren, about what Art House Theater Day is and a little bit about themselves, of course. And then after that, you're going to hear an interview with Joseph A. Ziemba of Bleeding Skull, who is one of the driving forces behind AGFA, the American Genre Film Archive, and they are having their new release, John Landis's Schlock, play at the Art House Theater Day in select cities. Be sure to go to arthouseconvergence.org slash arthouseday, and you can find out more about where things are playing, what's playing, and find local theaters for you where you can see Art House Theater selections. Let's go ahead and roll those interviews. I'm Gabe Chicklin. I'm from the Austin Film Society in Austin, Texas, which is actually the second art house theater where I've worked. Um, I also worked at the Amherst Cinema in Amherst, Massachusetts, and I've pretty much been working at art houses for the majority of my uh, professional career. It's just something that I was drawn to in college. Uh, I studied film film, and uh, and just really fell in love with the art form and and was able to kind of find my niche in the industry, uh, in exhibition and, and, uh, marketing for the film. So helping more people find out about filmmaking and uh, that I love, which, which has really been a wonderful experience for me. I'm Lauren Desai from Winston-Salem, North Carolina, and I'm the founder and, um, the executive director of Aperture Cinema. Um, which is a forest green art house that opened in 2010. I don't have a formal film education. My background is just as a consumer and sort of uh, self-taught uh, cinephile. That's sort of my background. So you two are the art house theater co-directors, and I'm curious, have you always been that? Has And how long has this been going on? Art House Theater Day, we launched officially with our first day of celebration um, three years ago. So this is the third year um, upcoming. And the idea has been around probably a couple years before that. And so, you no, know, so this is, we're the originators of Art House Theater Day. We're a little jealous that Record Store Day had a day of celebration and uh, comic book stores. And so we just thought um, we needed one for Art House Cinema. And um, so we, we just kind of got together and planned it out. It's very grassroots and obviously we're still growing our audience and interest. The whole thing was made possible through something, a pretty awesome initiative called the Art House Conversion, which is, uh, an annual gathering of people who work at art house theaters that's been happening for about, I think, 11 years now. And over the course of the last decade, it's really grown from just a handful of theaters across the country to um, really hundreds of theaters across the world, uh, including Europe and Australia and Asia. So it happens physically once a year uh, on a large scale. And then there are regional conferences as well. Lauren and I know each other through the convergence and uh 
really actually came together around this idea because she had put it out at the convergence and I, I responded to it. So it's, you know, it's possible thanks to this network of theaters who are all independent and many of them are nonprofit and all of them are, are promoting art house cinema and culture. Um, and so, you know, it, it's something that makes ideas like this possible where, you know, all these theaters can coordinate and organize national celebrations and, and, uh, and just, you know, have kind of a unified approach to exhibition. So I know if I go out on record store day, I'm going to be buying a lot of records and maybe have access to some exclusive titles. If I go out for a comic book store day, I'm going to get some free comics and I'll probably be spending a lot of money on some other comic books as well. What can I expect from National Art House Theater Day? Yeah, we don't we don't have that sort of easy way to have unique items available what, because what we do is program film. So the day is designed around what we do and so it's around the films that we program and um so we have films that are exclusive to the day or sneak peeks or uh, re-releases so the idea is to get people to come and celebrate with us on that day in keeping with the model of record store day and free comic book store day you know we are trying to create exclusive experiences for people so they may not necessarily have a a product that they can take home with them but you know they'll be taking home the memory of of seeing something that they probably wouldn't have been able to see otherwise um at least that's the idea behind our programming so for instance you know thunder road is going to be an advanced screening um with uh, a special introduction that you'll only be able to see on our house theater day from the director and a lot of the other films as well, you know, Schlock will have um, a piece of a pre-recorded video introduction from John Landis, the director. And uh, a lot of these are, are advanced screenings. So you get to see them first on Art House Theater Day before anyone else around the country or world gets to see them. And so, you know, you get the sense of, of having a shared exclusive experience. Some of our distributors will also give us some cool exclusive giveaway items on that day. There is one pretty cool giveaway that we can't announce yet, but um, it's exciting and and it looks like it's going to happen. So um, all I can say is really just show up to your local theater on Art House Theater Day and hopefully you'll get some cool swag. (laughs) Oftentimes the theaters will also individually kind of create their own items to give away on the day as well. So is this like a from dusk till dawn or from dawn till dusk kind of a thing? Or how does this work? It really depends on the theater. We've sort of embraced the individuality of the art houses that participate. And so every every theater is a little bit different and unique. And some of them only have one screen. Some of them have four screens. Due to that, you know, it, it really means that the programming that you'll get at each theater is going to be a little bit different. but you will see at least one of our sort of exclusive titles um, from Art House Theater Day's exclusive roster. And yeah, how, how each theater chooses to celebrate will really depend on, on the theater themselves. Uh, I know a lot of people use it as an opportunity to bring out other filmmakers and films um, if they have local connections or sometimes they'll also have additional like parties or receptions. Um, 
Q&As after some of their other film programming. It really just depends on each of the individual theaters that are celebrating. So, you know, if people want to see what they're going to find on a local level, they should, they should check out, um, arthousetheaterday.org, our website, and find the index of theaters that are participating, and then find their local theater and see what's playing. Have all the art houses that you guys have been dealing with, have they all converted to digital projection? I would yeah. say the majority of them have. A lot of them still have 35 millimeter capabilities, though. And so, I, you know, I imagine that some of them might be showing some films on 35 millimeter to right. celebrate sort of um, that tradition. I know of at least one theater that defiantly has not converted from 35 millimeter, which is the New Beverly in L.A., which is the theater that Quentin Tarantino bought and and kept, basically kept alive. But they they only do 35 millimeter and they only do repertory film programming. But they're they're kind of a, a niche you know outlier from the rest of the the theaters. You know, Gabe, you uh, work for the Austin Film Society, and I've always wondered, and what is it about Austin that seems to make it such a mecca for independent film? I think it's a combination of a of a few things, um, but really, I want to say that it traces back largely to Richard Linklater's involvement in the 80s. He actually, some people know this, some don't, but Richard Linklater founded the Austin Film Society uh, himself in 1985 um, and really grew it uh, over the course of the 90s and early 2000s into what it is today, which is a really large, robust institution uh, that supports filmmakers and also does exhibition. So, um, I think that had a major effect on the filmmaking landscape in Austin. And of course, he also just with his filmmaking brought Austin kind of into the, the spotlight as, as far as a location to film and a place for film culture. That and, you know, the, the birth of the Alamo Draft House theaters here in Austin, which happened in the nineties and early two thousands. And their programming has just always been excellent and and brought things that you really have a hard time finding anywhere else in the world um here to austin so yeah it's it's just kind of been a snowball effect i think really since richard linkletter and the film society began in the 80s it just kept attracting more and more people who liked the idea of of being able to make films on a on a really uh, collaborative and friendly level, um, which isn't necessarily something that you get in other places where there is film industry. Um, and the idea of being able to just see things that you really can't see anywhere else in the world, except for maybe a couple other film hubs like New York and LA. Um, but, you know, living here and it, having lived in the Northeast um, previously, I, I do feel like yeah, it's it's really on par the sort of options you have as a as a cinephile uh, of what you can see in the city is on par with New York. And uh, I've never lived in L.A., but you know I have a good sense of what you can see in L.A. as well. And and um, I think on any given night you have just as many options here in Austin to see something super obscure and probably presented in 35 millimeter, oftentimes with you know filmmakers in attendance and there's just so much 
it's almost overwhelming <laughs> as far as the, the options that you have as a film lover here in Austin. Lauren, I know that you run your own art house theater. You're involved with Aperture. What films are you planning on showing for art house theater day? And what are you most excited for? So we're going to do three of the programs. Uh, we're doing the guilty and uh, big bad, big bad box and other tales. Um, and we are doing Thunder Road and I'm I mean I'm excited about all of them in for their own kind of unique reasons. Um, you know, Big Bad Fox is a family sort of film and I loved Ernest and Celestine, um, the filmmaker's previous film and, you know, being able to show films that kind of um, are geared towards younger audiences excites me because that's kind of <laughs> our future audience and something we really need to cultivate. Um, and then The Guilty, I thought was an amazing film. It's a foreign language film, which is another kind of, uh, personal interest of mine because I think, um, you know, here in the U.S., we sort of don't, um, gravitate towards watching foreign language films in theaters as much as I think we should. So any chance that, um, we, I have to show them at Aperture. We um, we go for and um, Thunder Road. You know, it's a it's a true American independent film. That's ultimately what I think uh, Aperture was created to show, um, and that was sort of the the momentum behind um, sort of why we came to be in the first place. And so to come back to sort of those roots and celebrate that why we picked that title. And then, we, you know, we, along with those three, we'll be showing all the other films that we have um, programmed for that day. Um, so it really kind of for Aperture, the day is a way to attract a really diverse audience and really show them that um, the art house cinema is a place that um, celebrates our community and really programs with um, all of the different members of our community in mind. It's interesting to see that some of your sponsors, things like Warner Archive and Filmstruck and Amazon Studios, are so much about streaming. And some people could say, oh, well, streaming is killing art house theaters, but yet they're actually supporting art house theaters, which is kind of a nice thing. We've been careful to choose uh, who we work with and wanted to work with people who I think ultimately are trying to do the same thing that we're doing, which is promote film culture. I don't think any of, of the... Uh, of our sponsors are doing anything but helping give access to great films, um, just the same as a lot of exhibitors. So, and you know, with, with Amazon studios, what they're doing is primarily focusing more on actually theatrical exhibition. They're really one of the, the best exhibitors out there, um, in, in the sort of independent film world right now in terms of what they're producing and, and the relationships that they've developed with the the theaters that exhibit their films. And with Filmstruck, you know, they're they're film lovers too. They're getting films out there into the world that um are super hard to find and uh very niche and may not be playing very often around the country in theaters. So it's giving people the opportunity to discover more of those types of films. And I actually think it just really ultimately has um, kind of a, a rising tide effect uh, where it's really strengthening film culture because people are going to want to see those films 
on the small screen and the big screen. I, I think people who appreciate this type of filmmaking want to see it on the big screen when they have the chance to. But for those times when they don't, then, you know, they have home video and they have streaming. And I think, you know, with Filmstruck and Warner Archive, they're just doing a great job of, of giving people the opportunity to see those types of films at home when they're not playing at a, a local theater. So what's the biggest thing that we can do to help support art house theaters when it's not art house theater day itself? You know, art house theaters are pretty much, I mean, in our case, we're open every day of the year. So um, there's something always on screen. And I think the biggest thing is to um, come see films. And I mean, I agree with what Gabe said. I think just elevating film culture um, is good for all of us. And, um, you know, the other thing is a lot of, a lot of art house cinemas are, are nonprofit organizations. So, uh, beyond ticket sales, there's other ways that that um, you can support art house cinemas around the country. Yeah, and you know, for people to just keep in mind that when it comes to cinema, you you kind of vote with your butt. You know, you <laughs> you whatever you wind up seeing, whatever seat you're sitting in, is going to determine the sort of films that get made like that. You know, so if you want to see something you know, new and exciting, then you have to go out and embrace that kind of film when it plays in the theater. Um, it, it's really, I don't think, um, the average film goer completely understands just how critical it is to go see a movie when it's playing in a theater. It just has such a huge effect on the lifespan of that film, waiting for something to come to Netflix or, or some other streaming service. A, you know, it may never even make it to that streaming service, it, you know, especially if it doesn't have a, a, a big release in the theater. And B, it just, what you don't understand is that has a huge effect on the rest of that film's lifespan and the, and the filmmaker's ability to make more films. And, you know, it, it really is a make or break point when a film hits the big screen. Um, so it's just so important for people to go out and support those types of films with their, you know, with their, movie going dollars and not just spending that on big blockbuster movies and, and, you know, whatever else. So, um, yeah, it's really about just going to the theater and seeing things on the big screen. Um, I mean, who doesn't love that experience and who wouldn't want to have that experience over, you know, your home TV or, or computer or whatever. As Lauren said, a lot of theaters, uh, art house theaters are now nonprofit because it's a more sustainable, model to be a nonprofit and it allows you to have more flexibility so you can program films that you should be sharing with people and not just films that are going to pay the bills. So um, understand that and, and become a member if your art house theater has a membership program or make a donation. If there's, you know, a, a way to make a donation to the theater, um, those types of things are really kind of a next level way to show your support and appreciation for, for art house theaters. Um, I, you know, it, it rarely actually, you know, the, the ticket rarely actually covers the full price of showing that film. Oftentimes it's actually only a fraction of the cost that's actually associated for that theater. So, so yeah, it's just important for people to be aware of that. If you want to see more intrepid filmmaking and if you want to see diversity in film, 
and, you know, better representation and just more interesting and original storytelling. You know, if you're the type of person who complains that, you know, there are so many sequels and, you know, nothing really new or exciting coming out, then go see more art house films. When was the last time you saw an art house sequel? You know, <laughs> it's all original and it's all interesting storytelling and, uh, and, you know, it really needs to be supported. It's funny. I was reading, um, one of the reviews for The Guilty, which is, it's, um, from Denmark. And one of the critics was just pointing out about how, oh, I'm, I'm imagine this is going to get picked up by some Hollywood studio for a remake. And it's like, well, come see it <laughs> in its original, you know, in its first iteration before it's remade. Cause I promise it'll be a much better film. Um, <laughs> you know, we've seen it time and time again, you know, uh, filmmakers start out on the independent level working, you know, the festival circuit and showing in a handful of art house theaters around the country. And, you know, that's where their film gets picked up and people suddenly care about that film and the filmmaker. And the next thing you know, they're making the next Star Wars movie or the next, you know, big Oscar winning, uh, best picture film. You know, those, those types of stories just happen time and time again, but it really starts at the art house level that's where those people find their audience and that filmmaking resonates. And so, yeah, again, it's, it's kind of art houses are, are where that type of originality is embraced. And then you see it have, you know, then you see it go on to influence the greater sort of pop culture at large. So, so yeah, it's, it's an exciting place to be in film. Lauren and Gabe, thank you so much for your time today. It was a real pleasure talking to you. Yeah, you too, Mike. Thank you, Mike. My name is Joe Ziemba, and I'm the director of genre programming at the Alamo Draft House in Austin, Texas, and also the director of AGFA, which is the American Genre Film Archive, and that's the uh, Alamo's nonprofit sister company. I seem to have been getting a lot of press releases and screeners and things for AGFA, probably just for the like the last couple months. It seems to have suddenly cropped up on my radar. Why is that? Oh, well, that's great to hear. For the longest time, AGFA was just a film archive. So we had, it's really the biggest genre film archive in the world. Sebastian Di Castillo, who is my coworker at AGFA, he was kind of the heart and soul of AGFA for a long time and had, was running the archive and making sure that the prints got out. But at a certain point, he and I were really interested in what we could do with AGFA. Like, what are the possibilities? Where could it go? So about two years ago, we basically pitched Tim League, uh, the CEO of Alamo, on this idea that we thought, you know, AGFA is an archive now, but what if we actually started, you know, building up how we can share these movies rather than just loaning out prints. What if we could get rights to movies and release them? And that led to a partnership with Something Weird Video, and we did a Kickstarter to get a 4K film scanner in-house. And from there, we started our own home video label. And then from there, since we were already a theatrical distributor, we thought, well, what's another thing we can do? We can try to do theatrical distribution. So we started doing that, and that really blew up over the last year. And we've hired our friend Brett Berg to handle all of the theatrical bookings for us. 
so in the last year or so, it's just really built up and we're kind of on a really good track with the releases at this point. We were kind of steady and just seeing how things were going for the first year. Now heading into the second year, we're really pushing and doing more and we have a better grasp of it and we're way more confident. Well, I want to step back a little bit and tell me, how did you get involved with genre films and genre filmmaking? My entire life, I've been obsessed with horror movies and exploitation movies and outsider filmmaking. And it was kind of a natural progression because it was something that I was really into as a, as a kid, um, watching movies and watching. Growing up in Chicago, I watched Son of Sven Gulli on TV and was introduced to all sorts of horror movies. It was a major interest in my life. And then I started collecting VHS tapes more and more in the late 90s. And that led to this thing I do called Bleeding Skull, um, which was really just kind of a, an outlet to celebrate these movies that I felt weren't getting celebrated in the correct way out in the world. You know, it just became a, a hobby, like my main hobby in life grew to be um, a profession, which I'm very grateful for because it's very rare having worked lots of jobs in the last 20 years that didn't really align with what I wanted to do. Um, when I finally came here to Austin to work for Alamo, everything that I did in my life kind of came together in terms of not only um, appreciation for genre movies, but design work, which was my profession before. Um, so all these things coming together into one place has been really great. So that's kind of how that happened. Well, I know Bleeding Skull is a, is a book, and it's a terrific book. What was the impetus to bring that together? Was that a zine beforehand, a website? What was that? Oh, it started out as a site, and it, it started out. Um, it actually started out on Thanksgiving one year. I got really sick, and I had the flu, and I wasn't able to go to Thanksgiving with my family. So I had all of these VHS tapes just lying around my apartment, and I just started watching them and then writing about them, like writing little blurbs about them, just because it was a fun exercise. And I thought, oh, I kind of like this. I'm having a really good time writing about this. So I just decided to start a website and put all the reviews online. And that's how it started. And from there, it, it really grew because I was so obsessed with it. I was doing like four to six reviews every week for like the first two years. And I got really into it. And then it became at a time when I was really poor and didn't have a lot of money, it became a way to get screeners to review for the site. So I started doing that. And then it just grew from there. It um, had the idea to do a book really when I was kind of at like a point in my life where I could go in a little many different directions. And I decided to move to LA because that had always been a dream of mine and just work on the book there. And it, it worked out and we got it published. So now um, with Annie Choi and Zach Carlson, who are my partners in Bleeding Skull, we have a second book coming out with Fanographics next year in April. And it's called Bleeding Skull, a 1990s trash horror odyssey. So it's a sequel to the 1980s book. And then we also have the partnership with Agfa where we release films uh, with Agfa and Agfa and Bleeding Skull. Not only are you a writer, but you also have been in a bunch of bands, too. I have, yeah. Before, I think I was even in, I mean, I was always into movies, but when I got, I, I would say around like seventh or eighth grade, I got really into music and I'd taken piano lessons as a kid and played drums and stuff like that. But I got really into being in bands and played in bands all through high school. And then in, um, towards the end of high school and the beginning of college, uh, I was in a band called Wolfie. And um, we were very young teenagers, um, and it was just our dream to put out CDs and seven-inch records at the time. So we did that and kind of toured around, had no idea what we were doing whatsoever, and we were very young and inexperienced, but really had a lot of fun doing that. And then after that, I was in a band called The Like Young, which was like a little more serious. Um, we were kind of dedicated to like, let's give this a shot and see if we can make music full-time and devote our lives to this. And the answer was we couldn't because uh, it didn't work out, but it was still kind of a fun experience to try doing it. 
Um, so we did that for like five or six years, that band, and we did pretty well with that band. We put out some records. We were on Polyvinyl Records, um, which is a really great label from Illinois. And then after that band, I did solo stuff under the name Beaujolais um, for like, I don't know, maybe like six or seven years. And then um, after that, uh, I started a band with Annie Choi, who is also my partner at Bleeding Skull, called Taken by Savages. And um, it's at this point where making music is just a really fun hobby, and we kind of just do it all ourselves and put our records out ourselves. Um, also because we're really old, and you know who cares about like people our age making music, so we just do it for fun now. Well, tell me a little bit more about the Agfa releases because, like I said, I've seen that pop up more and more. The I think the first one that I managed to get my hands on was uh, recently um, a screener of God Monster of Indian Flats came across my desk, which is a favorite of many years. So I was so glad to see a restored version of that. The goal for the releases is like we're totally realistic about them, knowing that the movies that we release are really obscure and really only attractive to a certain amount of people. We're never going to be on a level of, you know, we're never going to be putting out a Toby Hooper movie or George Romero movie or anything like that. So the advantage we have as being a nonprofit is that we're able to pick and choose these passion projects of movies that we really feel deserve to be preserved and deserve to be seen by generations when we're gone, um, more generations after we're gone. So we're able to really um, kind of dive in and really be passionate about what we're doing. And the only criteria is really that we break even um, enough to do the next one. And so far, it's really worked. Um, so we're even making a little bit of profit off of each one, which is good. Some sell better than others, but we're in a really cool position being a nonprofit because everything kind of goes back into AGFA. Um, so yeah, so the, the releases themselves, um, we love it. We love doing them so much. They're like the most funnest thing that we do. Um, and we do everything in-house from um, you know the scanning of the film elements to the post-production work and the restoration to designing the packaging and making DCPs for theatrical. We kind of do it all under one roof. The first release we had was The Zodiac Killer, um, which was really fun because the story behind that movie is totally insane. Basically, the movie was made so that the filmmaker could try to catch The Zodiac Killer while he was still around in 1970. Um, so that was a favorite. So that was the first one we did. Um, and then we also did The Violent Years with something weird and a movie called Bat Pussy, which is also very interesting. <laughs> it's like the the world's first adult film parody. And it's kind of, I guess you could technically say it's kind of a takeoff of the old Batman TV show, but it is not that at all. It is uh, unlike anything you've ever seen. It's a very, very insane movie. Yeah, we did God Monster with something weird. And uh, what else? Oh, Ed Wood's Take It Out and Trade is coming out later this year with something weird as well. Um, which was a huge big deal for us because uh, that movie was, it was Ed Wood's last movie as a writer director that he completed. And um, it was kind of like this mythical beast for so many years, like reading Rudolph Gray's Nightmare of Ecstasy biography. It's like, no one's ever seen this movie and where is it? It's lost. And we were able to track it down with Rudolph Gray's help and um, purchase the movie. And we're finally releasing it after 50 years. People are going to be able to see it. So that's, that's really exciting. And then in between those, we have the just the Agfa label releases and that stuff like uh, The Sword and the Claw, which is a totally insane Turkish action movie starring Kunin Arkin, who's like basically like the Charles Bronson of Turkey. He's, he's amazing. Um, and Effects, which was a movie that we really loved um, from Pittsburgh. It was made by a lot of George Romero's friends. And it's kind of like this meta like snuff movie horror thing uh, that's very like cinema verite-esque very cool movie and we really love that so we put that one out 
Um, and then we have the Ag Phone Bleeding Skull releases. And so far with those, there's been a movie called The Soul Tangler, which was uh, made on Long Island. It's basically like reanimator shot on Long Island for the price of a used car. Uh, it's really cool. And then Ninja Zombie is coming out um, October 9th, which is a, uh, a movie that was shot in Chicago on Super 8 and never released. So it's a pretty eclectic group of films. The unifying thing with all of the movies is that someone on the team is super passionate about it and we love it and we want it to be out there. Well, who was passionate about John Landis's schlock? That would be me. Schlock was kind of a big deal for me as a child um, because my mom was a teacher and she used to take me with her um, sometimes to her class if I would have the day off of school. Um, she taught about 40 minutes away from our house. So it was like a different school district. So she would take me with her to her classroom. And then um, I was really into comic books as a kid, and I still am. So there was a really cool comic book store by the, the um, school where she taught. So when I would go with her, she would take me to this comic store. And it was really cool because there was just stuff everywhere in that place. It was all haphazard, all out of order. Um, magazines were underneath and comics were on top. So one day when I was in there, I think in probably second grade, I discovered Famous Monsters of Filmland. They had a bunch of back issues for like a dollar. So I just had my mom buy me a bunch of them. It was great. I got like five copies of Famous Monsters that I'd never seen. And the first one I opened up had this photo that I was obsessed with. And it was a gorilla playing a piano. And it said schlock, like in 3D letters coming out of it. And the photos accompanying the article about this gorilla playing the piano were amazing. It was like this guy in a gorilla suit wearing glasses, directing like in, behind a film camera. And I was just really taken with, I liked gorillas in the first place when I was a kid. And I loved like gorillas in movies. But this movie just looked totally outrageous and goofy to me. As a kid from maybe like probably until I was in college, I never saw the movie. I just knew about it from reading about it. And I was always, it was one of those movies where you see an image as a kid and it's just burned into your brain for the rest of your life. So when I finally saw the movie, I was kind of shocked that it wasn't a horror movie, but I was also shocked by how much I loved it and how funny it was because I knew at that point, I, I think I was in college when I first saw it, I knew who John Landis was and I knew his movies because my dad was a huge John Landis fan. My dad to this day, his favorite movie is Animal House. So I was aware of what to expect, but I didn't expect it to be as good as it is, especially for like a first time filmmaker being, I think he was 19 years old when he made it. So it was like this rare time in your life when you see something as a kid and you idealize it and for years and years and years, and then you end up seeing it and it's like, oh, it's, it's not what I expected, but it's just as good and it's just as great. So that's kind of like my history with the movie. And to this day, I think that it really holds up. I think it's a really funny and goofy and heartfelt and loving movie. There's a Blu-ray release of it coming out. Are you involved with that at all? No, that's Arrow Films. And AGFA handles AGFA handles theatrical for Arrow Films. Yeah, we have a number of theatrical partners, um, like Arrow Films, Severn Films, Vinegar Syndrome. We have like the Herschel Gordon Lewis Library, and we have some Shaw Brothers titles that we handle for Celestial. So Schlock came about because we have theatrical on it. We rep it theatrically. That's why we were all the, like the AGFA team was sitting around thinking like, okay, what can we do for Art House Film Day? Because we want to be a part of it. It's important. And we looked at the this huge slate of titles that all the theatrical partners had in our own AGFA titles. And the first one that popped out at us was Schlock because it's been, you haven't been able to see it at theaters since it was out. Basically, there's just no way to watch it. There's a couple of prints out there, collector's prints, but it's almost like it's unseen. 
Yeah, I only remember hearing about it. I've never actually had seen it. And then it was so nice to finally get some of the origins and the different versions, let's say, of See You Next Wednesday, those announcements that are coming up throughout the movie. I mean, because that's just been the longest running John Landis joke for years of where's See You Next Wednesday? What is going to be the reference in this movie? Yeah, yeah, it's great. I mean, it's something, too, that and when I was a kid and I would watch his movies, I had no idea what it was, but I just knew that it was popping up in all these movies. And it becomes almost like this nostalgic thing that follows you throughout life because every one of his movies that would come out would have something in there. So where did you get the print from for this? Was this in the archive and you managed to restore that? Yeah, Arrow Restored did all the restoration work. Uh, we just handle theatrical on it. It's uh, So Arrow handles all the restorations and then they basically hand us something called a ProRes file. And we, we create the DCP from that. And the DCP is what goes out to theaters. It's a digital file. Tell me a little bit about this Art House Day that Schlock is going to be a part of. Art House Day is a really cool thing. It came out of um, a convention or a, that happens once a year called Art House Convergence. Um, and it happens around the same time as Sundance. And it's, um, it's a really pure and beautiful movement. Um, it's basically once a year distributors and exhibitors get together and celebrate art house theaters and celebrate micro theaters and small theaters and alternative theaters and get together and share ideas and go to panels and talk to each other. And um, it's really kind of inspiring every year to have that. And so art house theater day, from what I understand grew out of that uh, and is a way to celebrate that across the country at theaters everywhere. Um, so it's a way to focus on independent distributors and independent films and things that are coming out that uh, we think should be out there and be representative of that whole ideal. So what's your role in that? Uh, we are actually not involved in putting on Art House Theater Day. There's a small group of people that are involved in Art House Convergence that handle it. And as far as AGFA goes, um, we basically just submit something to them to be accepted as part of the package of Art House Theater Day. And so luckily they were on board with doing schlock. So that's how we were involved in it. It must be nice to be able to bring that movie that you've been kind of obsessed with for all these years to a much larger audience. It's pretty fun, actually. It's it's uh, We think we talk about that all the time in the office, how we're in positions where, you know, there's these movies that have been so important to us all of our lives. And now we are in a position where we can share them with people that it isn't just like bringing a copy over to a friend's house and watching it. It's like, we can actually help get this movie out there and get people to see it in a theater. And I think um, one of the things that's really amazing today, like, like in 2018, is that how vibrant theatrical screenings are, especially of repertory genre content. It's amazing. Like it's, there's so much support out there and people want to keep that experience alive. And it's, it's really special. Can I ask you a few questions about Ticket Out and Trade? Of course. How did you finally manage to track down a copy? Where was it at? So Rudolph Gray, who wrote Nightmare of Ecstasy, the Edward biography, um, we were hanging out in New York with Rudolph Gray and Frank Henenlotter, who's the director of Basket Case, because we were recording a commentary for The Violent Years, which was a Blu-ray that we released last year with Something Weird in Agfa. And I had uh, been kind of drumming up the courage to ask Rudolph about Take It Out and Trade, because... It had screened once at Anthology Film Archives in New York, but it was from a tape source and it was Rudolph's own tape source. So I was like, okay, we're going to record the commentary. And then at the end, I'm just going to like grill him on Take It Out and Trade because I really want to find out what's going on with this movie. Who knows? Like he might know something. So yeah, we were like packing up our gear and I was like, Rudolph, can I ask you about Take It Out and Trade? And he's like, sure. And I said, so like, what's the deal with it? I know you have a tape master. And he's like, well, 
there's one 16 millimeter print. I know where it is and I know who owns it and they want some money. And I said, how much do they want? And he told me, and I thought, I think we can make that work. <laughs> like, I think the amount that they're asking, I think we can do it. So we came back to Austin, had a couple of meetings, talked about it. And we're like, okay, I think we can do this. So we ended up getting on the phone with the rights holder and the person who owned the film, which was the producer's son. And um, he had it and he was willing to work with us. And it ended up being a pretty long, drawn out process of being able to get the price to where where it would work for both sides. And then also getting out to L.A. to actually get the film elements and getting them back here in Austin. But once it actually came together, it was a really easy process. Um, it was just a matter of like Rudolph knew where it was and he was the connection. So he, it's, we owe it all to him for making it happen. Are you guys involved when it comes to all the extras and all the things that go along with the releases? Yeah, yeah. For the Agfa releases, we do everything ourselves. For the most part, for something like Take It Out and Trade. So with that one, we flew out to New York and recorded. I recorded a commentary with Frank Henenlotter and Rudolph. And then we also are including another movie that was in the Something Weird archive that stars Ed Wood called The Love Feast. And he plays this photographer guy. And then we also have the Take It Out and Trade outtakes, which were, um, that was like the very, like, the coolest thing about that was that back in the 90s, Something Weird released this silent 60-minute take, like, outtakes on tape of Take It Out and Trade. So that was the only way to see, like, what is this movie? And it just made the myth of the movie even larger, like having that VHS. So we were able to go back to those outtakes and rescan them in 2K. So those are also on a Blu-ray. Um, and then we also have um, some exclusive liner notes from Rudolph Gray. So it just depends on each release, like how much we do. Um, there are literally only three people on the staff of AGFA, and then Brett, who's the theatrical sales manager, he's in L.A., so he's not here with us in Austin. Um, so the three of us kind of like figure out, or the four of us figure out what the extras are going to be, and then we kind of go from there and try to make it happen. This is such a time to be alive. I mean, we just did an episode about Dennis Hopper's The Last Movie. I just saw today the trailer for The Other Side of the Wind. And now we've got Take It Out and Trade as well. This is nuts. Yeah, it's crazy. I know. I, I hear you. <laughs> it's crazy. Another uh, AGFA release that came to my attention recently was Lady Street Fighter. How did that one come to be? We're huge fans of Renee Harmon and James Bryan. Um, who made Lady Street Fighter. James Bryan's Don't Go in the Woods was like a seminal kind of introduction into trash horror filmmaking for me back in the day. We started uh, working with James Bryan because Zach Carlson, who's part of Bleeding Skull and also used to be part of Alamo, he had brought out James Bryan for a screening of Don't Go in the Woods at the Alamo like 10 years ago. And so he had known Jim through that. And um, we got wind of this crazy thing happened where Zach's friend in San Francisco bought a used car. And in the back of the trunk of the used car, there were some VHS tapes. And one of the tapes was this unreleased James Bryan, Renee Harmon movie called Run Coyote Run, which was totally random and insane <laughs> that it was in the trunk of his car. But he called Zach and was like, hey, do you want this tape? And Zach said, sure. So he sent it to Zach and we watched it. And we're like, oh, my God, this is like a total like gift from heaven how does this exist so we ended up contacting jim bryan and saying like what's going on with run coyote run would you like to release it and said oh yeah sure so at the time um bleeding skull was in a partnership with mondo which is kind of like the art boutique of the alamo draft house and um so we ended up releasing it on vhs and that was where the partnership started and from there we did run coyote run and then we did a movie with him called jungle trap that came out uh last year 
And Jungle Trap was the last James Bryan, Renee Harmon project that was never finished. So we actually finished editing the movie and Annie and I recorded a score for it. And we finished the movie with James Bryan and released it uh, last year with Mondo and Bleeding Skull. And so that was like a big project with him. And then Lady Street Fighter came about because to me, that's like where Renee Harmon and James Bryan, like the, where their partnership really blossomed was with Lady Street Fighter. It's one of my favorite trash action movies. Yeah, he just he has the rights for the movie and he had all the film elements and we're like, hey, like Agfa has a has a label now in distribution. Would you be interested in doing Lady Street Fighter? And that's how it came about. Um, we were really we're so fortunate to have a working relationship with James Bryan. It's like you were saying before, like it's a good time to be alive. It's just life is insane sometimes. I can't believe it. And did I read right that there's actually the sequel to Lady Street Fighter on the Blu-ray? It is, yeah. So we were um James Bryan on, at his home in Lufkin, Texas, has this giant warehouse that's like his film archive. So it's his entire, all of his films and all of his memorabilia and paperwork and all that stuff. And so one of the same day that we found the Jungle Trap tapes, we found a, a plastic bin that said Revenge of Lady Street Fighter. And we we're like, hey, like, what? What is this? And he's like, oh, that's the sequel to Revenge of Lady Street Fighter. It was only released on VHS in South Korea. And we were like, is it a finished movie? And he said, yes. And so we were like, well, <laughs> we got to do something with this. It's really cool. So he ended up having the original 35 millimeter camera negative. But the thing about the movie is that it's it's basically like 25 minutes of new footage. And then like the rest of it is all Lady Street Fighter footage. And that was kind of Renee Harmon's uh, mode of making sequels. She would take pieces from other movies and composite them together and make a new movie out of it. Um, so the Revenge of Lady Street Fighter sequel is actually on like 25 minutes of new footage. And it's totally such a odd movie and such a weird thing to watch it's it's pretty great
If you enjoy this show and want more people to know about it, head on over to iTunes, leave a comment, and rate it five stars. Make sure you like and share us on Facebook, and don't forget to follow us on Twitter. Just search for Christopher Media. Thank you in advance for supporting Christopher Media by clicking on the PayPal button and by clicking through to all the sponsors who support ChristopherMedia.net. Most importantly, we would like to take the time to extend an extra special thanks to you. Christopher Media could not exist without your support. Thank you for visiting ChristopherMedia.net, and thank you for listening. Christopher Media, let's make some noise.